Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Let's write that down. I'm Justin Nipper. I edit at FightGameMedia.com. I'm a staff writer at WrestlingObserver.com. I am back with Japan's leading pro wrestling historian and editor and broadcast journalist and author. All those good things, Mr. Fumi Saito. Yes, we're back. Uh, special feature, special edition episode on the legendary Hiro Matsuda. One of the most influential figures in modern pro wrestling history. All right, so before we get rolling, I wanted to give a shout out, a special shout out to Steve Madison. Okay, he's a great wrestler and he's a big supporter of the podcast. So here's why I'm shouting Steve out. I'm shouting him out not just because he's a fantastic guy and has a really cool background in Japanese pro wrestling, which I'm sure we'll get to down the road. But actually, Steve, he's the one who suggested that we actually cover Hiromatsuda in the first place. Okay, so so get this. Steve happens to be a close family friend of Hiromatsuda's widow and daughter, Judy and Stephanie Kojima. And he also mentioned that they are weekly listeners of the show now, which is amazing. So huge shout out to the Kojima family and Steve Madison for the amazing support. Thank you. And, uh, and thanks to Steve for suggesting the topic because of course, Hiromatsuda is somebody that if you're familiar with the show, he's somebody that we're going to cover sooner or later. There's lots to cover. But um, when I brought it up to Fumi, we just got right into the show. It just snowballed from a few ideas from Fumi into a situation where I just had to hit record and let it flow. And it turned out to be a great episode. We covered a lot of different topics. Ones that are parallel to topics that we've covered on the show, but ones that we just haven't been able to get to yet. All right. I mean, from Hiromatsuda's early career in Japan to coming to the Americas through Peru and later Mexico and later Texas and be able to establish himself as this important mover and shaker during the territorial days of pro wrestling, very different ecosystem compared with today. Uh, when he was in the U.S., I mean, Matsuda left a significant imprint on the industry, and not just as a wrestler, as an in-ring talent. I think maybe even more so as a trainer. Um, you know, having trained the likes of megastars throughout the years, he's trained Hulk Hogan, Matsuda's trained Ron Simmons, Lex Luger, Hercules Hernandez, Scott Hall, among others. You know, in addition to being, I guess you could call him Japan's first true freelancer, first true freelance wrestler. And he also became the first Japanese, you know, native or expat to invest in foreign territory when he was a shareholder, championship wrestling from Florida. A lot of what Hiromatsuda did was simply, it just hadn't ever been done before. And what he set up 
the template he created is still clearly it's followed and, and respected and has evolved from where Hiromatsuda started it off. Started it off not just as being a wrestler, but being the man, the point person, the connection between two international companies. And what's interesting is his ultimate choice was to move to the States, move away from home and make his life in the States. You know, it's a unique wrestling story, but it's just a unique adventure in itself. And I'm happy to share it with all of you, and I was happy to talk about it with Fumi in today's episode. So let's get into it shortly. Before we start, if you have not already, please hit the subscribe button, Fight Game Media Network. Find it on whichever platform you usually use, Apple or Spotify. Hit the subscribe button, please. It helps us out very much. Let's get right into it. Today's episode, the one, the only, the very influential Hiro Matsuda. We changed plan. You know, let's have Mr. Hiro Matsuda episode today. Now that uh, you, you sent me messages that, uh, uh, that Hiro Matsuda's wife, widow, and his daughter was listening to our podcast, you know, and uh, so, and somebody asked you to do the Hiro Matsuda piece. And I believe Hiro Matsuda, is, yeah, Hiro Matsuda is such a big uh, part of wrestling history and a big influential figure, but often so overlooked. Now that uh, it's 2022, that he passed away back in 1999, it's been 20 years, that if we don't you know, go over his legacy and uh, accomplishment, and you know that the influence he had in wrestling business in Japan and America at the same time that uh, uh, that he, his legacy is already been overlooked, but uh, it will be forgotten. Not good, you know. That, that we gotta uh, have today's audience learn and know about Hiro Matsuda. That's yeah. What I'm thanks to uh, Steve Madison, big supporter of the show and pro wrestler himself. Uh, Who's he's the one who let me know about the Matsuda family being new. Write that down, listeners. Thank you, everyone. And any new listeners that have actually jumped on board the past couple of months, welcome. And thanks for all the kind words all lately on the last couple of shows in the funks and such. But um, but yeah, so today. Was funks a good, yeah. a good reaction? Or re, oh, know, yeah. I mean, it's, it? it's kind of... It's the funks. You can't really go wrong. Everybody will enjoy it. I think yeah. if you're already if you're already here and we do an episode on the funks, I think I, I think you'll enjoy the ride. But yeah, but thanks to Steve Madison today, uh, we're going <laughs> to look at very like you said overlooked aspects of Hiro Matsuda's career. I think so. In yeah. uh, all over the world, I don't want to just yeah. say in the states, in Japan, he's all over. Right. Right. And very influential. And before we forget, yeah, he is the one who trained Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff, Hercules Hernandez, Lex Luger, Ron Simmons, uh, Ron Simmons, Scott Hall, yeah, and and more. That's Scott Hall. A lot Hall of too, the yeah. most famous yeah. big guys from and the eighties and nineties. And after 
one year as like young lion new japan sent young keiji muto uh, uh, to florida hiro matsuda was the one waiting for young muto to muto to arrive in florida he trained him too so some people say that the hiro matsuda trained keiji muto too hmm. and partially he yes. did have a kind of uh a lot, kind of, a lot of training people. with matsuda in florida and the south, south area Yeah, and he only trained um, big guys. You know, there wasn't. Yeah, we have to point that out that the, there was no such thing as wrestling school then. You have to be recognized by somebody who were in the business. You know, they don't even smart you up until your first match. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they just train. And you, you mentioned train. there is an expression that was used a long time ago, policeman, and that's what. Mr. Matsuda, yeah, yeah, you, policeman. You yeah. Described him as a policeman, or yeah, somebody in wrestling office. That the, sometimes you know the big football player or big street fighter or who, uh, the young big guy or big bouncer who want, want you know uh, want to be wrestler or challenge wrestler. You know, wrestling is fake, right? And then and, and, uh, some big guy will want to challenge you. You know, in a fight, in a real fight. And usually it was Hiro Matsuda who took uh, took on those newcomers, you know, and uh, bring them to dojo and uh, see what you can do. And then uh, they think wrestling is easy because it's fake or something. And Hiro Matsuda was there to stretch him <laughs> and smiling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you see, that's how how Kogan thing started. That how Kogan thought you you know mm -hmm. young Terry Blair, right? Uh, back in, in Florida, that you had to start. Yeah, yeah, Tampa, Florida, when he was still playing bass, uh, bass player uh, in the local band Rockers. Yeah, uh, he, of course, a big wrestling fan. You know, he was in the front seat, in the front row seat, and telling people he is like a superstar Billy Graham protege mm -hmm. or something. <laughs> you know, with tie dye t shirt on and everything. But he came to uh, Tampa's. Uh, the Tampa Sportatorium, which was also NWA uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida office, that uh, you got to start from somewhere, right? So young Terry Bollet, Hulk Hogan, came to um, the office, you know, like wanting to be a wrestler. How can I be a professional wrestler? May I, I mean, is this where you start? I mean, you would do that, right? And Hiro Matsuda said, you know, okay, come on over. And then uh, took him to back the office. And there's a hidden wrestling mat in there that uh, they just stretched him, you know? And he, the Hiro Matsuda didn't think Terry and Bole would come back next day, which he did. He showed up next day. All right, let's do it again, right? So it's like, wow, this guy must have it, right? So he decided to train him. I mean, from that Hindu squad, all right, today we're gonna do the 1,000 Hindu squad. If you can do it, you can come back tomorrow, kind of thing. Isn't that interesting? And that's just one of, uh big stars that he ended up training in the 80s but yeah he had a clear vision for these bigger guys who were already athletic coming into his style of training and show them how to yeah because um in america you already have a lot of big guys whereas whereas japanese wrestling dojo i mean good athlete right out of high school but you still uh what 170 pound guys right you're gonna train 
eat, sleep, breathe, you know, living in dojo, you have chunk of food and just put on the weight, lift weight, wrestle, practice, sleep, breathe, all these things. And one year later, you have wrestler's body or something. But uh, in America, you have you already have a lot of big guys just out of the local gym and how Kogan was a big guy. And what he needed was that he needed Hiromatsu style of training or like mm. a learning discipline, right? Yeah. And I guess he, young Terry Bollet, uh, young Hal Kogan had more guts than Hiromatsu anticipated. And uh, you know mm. the rest of the story, huh? But he was like that. So he stretched many wrestlers or, or, or like uh, challenging fans or doubters or the almost drifter type or or some football player who thought wrestling was easy way to make money so it's like a, how can i be a pro wrestler hiro matsuda would be there to stretch you so they'll give up kind of thing yeah so that's what the policeman was and also at the wrestling shows in old days 60s and 70s probably way before way back 50s 40s 30s 20s even that uh, at the wrestling card at the in a show you know i mean like a wrestling show in the building sometimes this somebody from out of arena out of the seat will challenge wrestler you know what i'm saying for you know i mean fight yeah challenge a professional wrestler for fight and not every, not everybody can take that challenge i mean because rest you know this fan guy who want to beat wrestler who got everything to gain and professional wrestler who take challenge got everything i mean that was the classic that this would always happen for years and years probably still does to an extent it shows when you just at the independent show not the not the wwe show wwe probably run the angle out of it you know like uh, as if somebody jumped over the over the guardrail and the security guard will take him to the back, but it was an angle or something. But the, that's the parody of it. And in old days, a lot of times, you know, somebody, I mean, would challenge professional wrestler, you know, to prove themselves or something. And uh, Mr. Wrestling Tim, mm-hmm. you know, Tim Woods lost his finger of it, you know, because of it, you know, somebody bit his pinky off, you know. And uh, Master Saito used to take up the challenge. In, in Atlanta and Florida, Masa Saito did that. Young Adrian Adonis took on, you know, uh, anybody in Amarillo, Texas. When he became Adrian Adonis, he was taking uh, an all-comers old challenge out of arena, you know. You, so there was such thing, I mean, traditionally in professional wrestling, you, you pro, pro wrestler will be challenged by this, you know, wannabe or, or I mean, like a, street fighter like a very confident guy that i can beat pro wrestler ha ha you know then you need somebody that legitimately tough enough to you know beat these people yeah, wrestling will always have uh yeah. you know when you have alcohol served at a venue you'll always get uh people who their ego somehow gets inflated and they have this idea in their head that they're tougher they they see what the wrestlers are doing they go i can do that it's been since since the carnival day <laughs> so yeah, i'm pretty uh, sure that's... yeah yeah i think one of the origin one of the origin of work too you know a lot of times that the, your ch- challenge out of the arena was like a planted too you know but uh, sometimes you get legit challenger like that you need somebody who can handle this and he almost that was that yeah 
he was a trailblazer. He was a tra- because it seemed like he was one of the first people from Japan to freelance. freelance. Kind of- yeah, yeah. He was born. He was born in 1937. 1937. Okay, and when he was 17, he watched Ricky Dozen on television. It was Ricky Dozen, Masahiko Kimura against Shaw mm-hmm. Brothers, the historical fight. You know, the, the famous match, the beginning of television, beginning first of wrestling. match in pro wrestling. Yeah, and yeah, you and I talked mm-hmm. about this over and over and over that the beginning of wrestling in Japan, beginning of t- television, and Hiro Matsuda was one of those generation that that watched Ricky Dozen on TV, and he decided to join um, uh, Ricky Dozen's dojo in 1956 when he was just. 18 nine, before his 19th birthday yeah 1956 then yeah then um before okinawa was returned to japan okinawa wouldn't be part of japan until believe it or not 1972. um all through 50s and 60s okinawa was still mm-hmm. under us okay and ricky dozen had okinawa tour and in okinawa there was a just like what we talked about, that uh, Okinawa native karate uh, karate master challenged Ricky Dozen for real. You know, that uh, uh, they didn't know how tough professional wrestlers were, and but this Okinawa native karate ma- you know, master thought they could beat wrestlers, right? And Ricky Dozen, okay, took the challenge. Instead, he, Ricky Dozen didn't go in the ring, he sent young rookie Hiro Matsuda, or I should say um, Yasuhiro Kojima at the time, that he sent Hiro, young Hiro Matsuda into the ring with this karate guy instead. And he, um, I guess Hiro Matsuda had to do it, and he beat this karate guy in Okinawa, and uh, he, this 19-year-old Hiro Matsuda thought he did it for the company, he did it for wrestling, he did it for everybody. Like a big sacrifice, huh? And um, but this is kind of sketchy. But uh, from what I understand, Ricky Dozen didn't even pat his back, right? That's the the myth, right? The legend. And yeah, it's a myth. That's a myth. Yeah, I wasn't there, obviously, but there's like a couple different versions of story to that. But uh, that that happened in 1957, January. Then that year. Young Hiro Matsuda, or I should say, Yasuhiro Kojima, decided to leave the country. Decided to leave wrestling. I mean, leave Ricky Dozen Dojo because he wanted to be a wrestler. He wanted to see the world. And it's not like he was like a big, huge, I mean, Ricky Dozen fan that he wanted to be with Ricky Dozen. It was, of course, he was a fan of Ricky Dozen, but he was more of a wrestling, like not a fan, but the wrestling professional wrestling is something that that can take him to the world see the world you know you, you become professional wrestler that'll open the door to the world kind of thing and that's exactly yeah, what he did and huh? he said uh before he was in the states he was peru right um after this after he quit ricky dozen um dojo and jwa it wasn't a big deal because one of the young mm-hmm. younger guys quit huh and they, they didn't really think much of him. And it took him another year until until the, the young Yasuhiro Kojima left the country. He had relative. He had relative in Peru. And he went to, when he was 22, he finally 
went to um, her, uh, his mother's side's relative who, who was living in, 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 in Peru. And that's the way he actually started wrestling career. So he had Japanese training and already debuted, but one of the younger guy, right? And he did the bodybuilding training on his own for one year. And when he was 22, he finally went to Peru and went to uh, Peru and, and had a lucha libre experience. Yeah. Uh, his, in Peru and Mexico, his very first ring name was er Ernesto Kojima, mm -hmm. like Ernest, right? Yeah, Ernesto Kojima was his very first uh, ring name until he finally went, okay, from Peru to Mexico, Mexico to finally to Texas uh, in 1961, Houston, Texas, for the promoter, Maurice Siegel, very famous, very famous promoter, Maurice Siegel, he, who was responsible of discovering Antonino mm -hmm. Rocker later on, yeah. And in Houston, his first ring name was Kojima Saito. Two surnames. <laughs> two last like names. Smith yeah. Johnson. Two, two, last, two family names. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, they, they did that with like Oyamakato <laughs> yeah. or something like that, you know? Yeah. Kojima Saito was his. I, mean, I guess Saito, like my name, it's so common, it's so boring. Therefore, it's so stereotyped. Let's use it, right? Kind of thing. Kojima Saito and Duke Keomuka uh, became tag team in 1961. That on, he, from, um, from Texas territory to all the Southern territory to Midwestern territory, um, territory after territory. And 1962 in Kansas City, Gusto Cares, you know, that the promoter Gusto Cares, who discovered people like Harley mm -hmm. Race, okay? Gusto Kers gave him Hiro Matsuda ring name. You know what the Hiro Matsuda was, you know, at the beginning? He is actually the third Matsuda in wrestling history. So, so Very. he was the third, then the, who came before that? Uh, very first Matsuda was Sorakichi Matsuda, very first Japanese professional wrestler in 1860s. You know, Sorakichi Matsuda, who was a sumo wrestler in Japan, and he traveled to, uh, got, on, got on a boat, big boat in Yokohama, and escaped from sumo world. And one year later, he was discovered in, in, in New York, discovered meaning like uh, he finally was on newspaper that, that he had a wrestling match. And he had a big wrestling, you know, that the, uh, Sorakichi Matsuda was the very first known Japanese professional wrestler in America. Not, not just in America, but established professional wrestler, Japanese professional wrestler. That's the original uh, Matsuda, Sorakichi Matsuda. And in 1920s, there's a second Matsuda, that the Mari Matsuda, that uh, welterweight and uh, junior welterweight uh, world, heavy, uh, world champion in Texas. The second Matsuda, uh, Mari Matsuda. Okay, So Sorakichi Matsuda and Mari Matsuda, and the old promoter thought this guy has got to be Matsuda, so he became Hiro Matsuda. Yeah, there's the I guess the, the wrestling tradition. Like sometimes you do find that throughout uh, wrestling history, there are a couple uh, wrestlers, same same last uh, name, not real last name, just you know working name. Yeah, but even like a, uh, closer to today's, you know, the, the wrestling history, 
Arn Anderson is never mm-hmm. Anderson family. <clears throat> you know, I mean, when you talk about Anderson family, the Gene Anderson, the Ollie Anderson, the Larry Anderson, the Gene and Ollie, you know, I think was real brothers. <clears throat> but the reason young Arn Anderson in down in Georgia was named Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson looked just like young younger Ollie Anderson. That was the reason, you know. Well, this, he can get by being Anderson. So last name, yeah, uh, like a like a Golden Grand Brothers, that the uh, Eddie. Um, the first one was uh, uh, what's what's uh, uh, Vince McMahon's favorite superstar, favorite Billy Graham. Superstar. No, no, no. Way before that, that uh, original Dr. Jerry, Jerry Graham, Graham. Yeah, Dr. Jerry Graham. The, yeah. Jerry Graham, older brother, the second brother, Eddie Graham, the third brother, Luke Graham, wrestling brothers, not related. Or Jimmy Valiant and Johnny Valiant, you know, Valiant brothers. They are or not how brothers, about, uh, you know what I'm the saying? So they double are, Inoue. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, Kyoko Inoue and Takako Inoue just happened to have the yeah, same last name. They're not related. <laughs> but they were real. They names. were a team. Oh, no, not related at all. And they were a team and started the same year. Oh, you know, I don't want to talk about myself, but in high school, there was at least 15 <laughs> Saitos in, in my high school class. And I always never wanted to have another Saito. Saito a lot, I mean, Saito is a common name. Saito, Suzuki. Oh, super common name. Sato, mm. the Yamada. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> so boring. But anyway, he was named like Kojima Saito first, but uh, uh, Gus, the Kansas City promoter, Gusto Karras, gave him Hiro Matsuda that he would keep forever. Yeah. So Yasuhiro Kojima became forever uh, Hiro Matsuda. Yeah, Matsuda is like a real traditional wrestling name in America. Sorakichi Matsuda, Mary Matsuda, and Hiro Matsuda. None of them related. Uh, useless trivia. Uh, Sorakichi Matsuda, real name. I mean, that Matsuda is a real name. And Mari Matsuda's that uh, um, that's his real name. But the, for Hiro Matsuda, uh, his real last name is always Kojima. Yasuhiro Kojima. It's pretty hard for American to pronounce that, huh? I don't know. Kojima. I don't know. I mean, pretty long. Mm-hmm. Yasuhiro. Kojima. Yeah, oh, that can be has good big, uh, rhythm to it. Sure, yeah. why not? I yeah, think yeah. it's I been that, over uh, time. But... We've been uh, not. It's not just uh, with uh, you know the West and Japan, but it's also just the entire world is a little more literate when it comes to um, how things sound, how how names and uh, uh, words and other languages sound. There's a generally higher education about it so i think and that i mean hey look right right konosuke takeshita is not a simple name and he's, that's pretty hard, he's huh? still very popular so <laughs> right. i think we've i think years ago though right, there right. was that worry that promoters had that they had to simplify the name to make sure that or them he always use always use and put stereotype. mr huh? in front of the name <laughs> mr. Mr. mr fuji mr. Yeah, instead of Masa Saito. Yeah, Mr. Fuji, right. Mr. It Sato. had a very, um, 
James Bond 007 feel. What was his name? Uh, uh, Ajab. <laughs> Ajab. Yeah. Tash Togo. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even Tash. Ooh. It's Push. Toshi. Right? T O A. Yeah. Uh, but the, they dropped I hmm. and it just became Tash. <laughs> That's easier to pronounce, right? Or mistake by mistake. Somebody printed T O S H instead of T O S H I. And then you just become Tash. You know, Mr. Pogo, remember, you know, Onita's mm-hmm. big rival, Mr. Pogo? He meant to be mm-hmm. Mr. Togo, T-O-G-O, just like a great Togo. But there's misprinted on the program, uh, Pogo mm-hmm. instead of Togo, like a P. That on, he just became Mr. Pogo uh, the rest of his career. I think that's kind of a common uh, occurrence in when, when Japanese stars come over and start making their name yeah i the same yeah. story i heard happened with uh wrestler nosawa nosawa rongai i the story nosawa i was rongai? told ah, was okay. that when he was telling he was working in mexico and he was on the phone telling the promoter what's the right. name to put down for him and it I, I think his surname is nozawa nozawa which is a regular name Nozawa, instead of Z. I mean, yeah, of and S, I think they... No, is an N-O-Z-O-W-A instead of S-O-W-A. So the promoter in Mexico put the S, and again, like Mr. Pogo, he, he just kept the stylization and spelling. And here, we, here he is. Yeah, rest of his. Well, then again, it, it worked out. Well, actually, great Muta, too. You know, it's always Keiji Muto, right? Ah, H and U and... Great Muta. Yeah, Great Muto, Muta. It's like, uh, they were, I mean, same spelling, M-U-T-O. They were still, you know, pronounce it like Muta. And then the Great Muta, M-U-T-A instead. But it kind of stuck. Yeah, yeah. But that happens. But if they're okay about it, I guess that's your name now yeah. you know and sometimes it's a easy way of you know giving your name some flair that you wouldn't have otherwise because you couldn't think of it because you didn't think of it because uh, sometimes these are uh, happy accidents fortuitous incidents that you know, oh happy because accident. you know that sounds good. imagine if mr pogo was called mr togo it would kind of different pogo it's just uh yeah, almost yeah. like a ripoff from the the, the the big heel, you know, persona. I would just think Tosh Togo. Not original. I mean, sure, I mean, if there yeah. already is a Togo, you probably think. Oh, no, but the, the, the great Togo and Tosh Togo was Togo mm-hmm. brothers. So I, that's why together. it's kind of, a, I think, a good thing. Or maybe a blessing it was for Mr. Pogo that he didn't become Mr. Togo. Pogo to not do yeah there was another togo you know in kansas city mm. again haruka used his togo name too for a while so togo is another very stereotypical uh japanese mm. you know, heel ring name anyhow hero matsuda name was given you know to the, the mm. yasuhiro kojima the first kojima saito wouldn't stick you know just two last name you know and uh that the matsuda name was more I mean, meant to be, this guy will be very, you know, you know, like pretty much a main event star if 
promoter Gastro, you know, Gastro Karas will name this Japanese wrestler a Matsuda. It'll be just like uh, Sorakichi Matsuda or Mari Matsuda. This is a third Matsuda. It's like a, a champion caliber, right? So, yeah. So, I guess that Matsuda name was very much the blessing from the promoter, you know, all, all the promoter. And also, he was like, the freelancer, very first American Japanese freelancer with no Japanese company connection. I don't think Ricky Dozen helped him at, at all on that. And he just took his own path, went to Peru, went up to Mexico, from Mexico to to Texas, and you know finally started working in 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 the states, in the mainland states. And she, I mean, like all older generation wrestlers do, that you travel from territory to territory like nomad working right worker today but i think what people need to realize as well this is in the 60s and pro wrestling in japan had early 60s wasn't that old it hadn't aged that much it was still new everything was new this was unprecedented it was this hasn't hadn't been done before there was riki dozan's group oh he very first and the smaller group, but they've been conquered by Ricky Dozen's JWA and pretty much monopoly in Japan. And Ricky Dozen passed away while he, you know Hiromatsuda was away from home. I mean, like trying to make it in in America, and news traveled very slow. Back, you know, that the, 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 what Hiromatsuda was doing for the for, in the first five year period, I don't think Japanese media or Japanese wrestling fan paid much attention to it yeah yeah it seemed that it, to me it seems like at that time it, if it wasn't uh those on story it was you know that was he was the news until other stars came in got bigger like giant baba and... yeah in 64 two years after his hero matsuda's american debut in, in july of 1964 he beat danny hodge and became NWA World Junior big. Heavyweight Champion. That's big, with no any without any connection or the strong tie with any establishment or promoters. Or I mean, he was a wrestler, work. I mean, like a like hmm? a working horse, right? Yeah. If today's the listeners out there don't know who Danny Hodge is, he was two-time Olympian. That there's. 1948 London Olympic and 1952 Helsinki Olympic. He went to uh, Olympic in wrestling twice and got the silver medal in 1952 uh, Helsinki Olympic. Then became professional boxer of all people. And Hulk Hogan wasn't the very first uh, professional wrestler to be on cover of Sports Illustrated. It was Danny Hodge who was the very first professional wrestler who made the cover Sports Illustrated magazine. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. But uh, Danny Hodge, I'm talking about Danny Hodge, how big of a star he was. Hiro Matsuda beat Danny Hodge to become NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion uh, when there was heavyweight champion of the world and junior heavyweight champion of the world. And uh, Danny Hodge pretty much was like, that was his title, you know, that uh, he, he traveled, but... Uh, he was from Oklahoma, and he based in Oklahoma, and he traveled to what the Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, but the, mainly Southern Territory, huh? 
And in those territories, the junior heavyweight world, NWA junior heavyweight uh, world championship was the main event instead of, uh, well, of course, the, the world heavyweight champion will travel you know, to your territory once or twice a year. But also, uh, Danny Hodge at the time, NWA junior heavyweight champion, was also traveling champion. And uh, uh, Danny Hodge, Hiro Matsuda matchup, that the single match program became such a, what would you call it, like a, uh, you know, the main event card, you know, like a set, like almost a set price that the, they'll bring in both Hiro Matsuda and Danny Hodge together to have title match in your mm-hmm. town. Does that, that make was sense? The, that was the headliner. That was the show. Yeah, yeah. So he they did that in Florida. They did that. They did that in Oklahoma. They did that in in Louisiana. They did that in Mississippi and all the southern territories. And that was like a, your golden money card for years. And after, uh, you see, I didn't understand what to make ninety minute title match. You know, because uh, the first meeting they usually had sixty minute time time mm-hmm. up draw. You know what I'm saying? And they'll bring in the same matchup, same title match, second time in the same city. That this time, that the 60 minute didn't do it, so they'll make 90 minute title match. Then they do the 90 minute Broadway too, like a marathon. I mean, even for that time, I know it was a little more common, but 90 minutes—that's a long time. But the wrestling match, you know, the title match or the your main event in 60s. And usually the one match will last what 45 minutes, two out of three, four match. You know, one match will take take up just about one hour. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that was a style. But uh, Hiro Matsuda was the type of wrestler that that can who can wrestle Danny Hodge for that length of time. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you do the 90 minute match, it's gotta be like a wrestling match. You, you can't. You, you can't. Um... Phone it in. You can't really. Uh... Oh no! You can't do the forearm smash for that um, minute. No. So there was two things I I think about when I think about their matches is that I, I think it, they seem to have worked because of Danny Hodge's background and they could have what you I guess you call it a more Japanese style match compared to other matches at the time. More grappling, more, more, more grappling. A, a deeper understanding of grappling, and on, um, on also. Uh, yeah. Of course, Danny Hodge is a, a Olympic silver medalist, but also uh, we should speak to Hiromatsuda's pretty strong, pretty crazy conditioning. Um, and that that when yeah. he was training, yeah. his students would also have to kind of be on the same regimen. But he's you know Mister Thousand Squats, so I've read. Yeah, yeah. So actually, between nineteen. 19- 64 and 1974 for 10 year period i don't know how many times they've met but the 10 year program uh, danny hodge against hiro matsuda uh for nwa world junior heavyweight title for 10 year period i don't know how many times they had matches probably hundreds huh uh i mean did they have um any particular bouts that i mean aside from the the title change were, were there any that uh, were notable from around that time in the in the south or like uh, but uh, not too many follows are there and no videotape is available and they did that in japan too in 1967 i'll get to it that the 
Hiro Matsuda was uh, another uh, the, the pioneer part of his legacy was that he came back to Japan 1966. Actually, he came back to Japan after Rikidozan died. And he and Duke Keomuka brought their NWA World Tag Team title to Japan. And Hiro Matsuda became very first Japanese wrestler who introduced German suplex hold uh, in Japanese ring before Inoki that. was doing it. The Korogach was, yeah, yeah, Rikidozan uh, days that the Korogach, you know, uh, and showed that original German suplex, you know, double, he was the only wrestler doing it. And uh, there, there must be t the, the time. I asked both Coral and both Hiro Matsuda about how they became friends, but wasn't friends at the end of time or something that they weren't talk. You know, you know, they weren't talking to each other or something. And uh, I spoke with both because it was obvious that it was Coral Gotch who taught Hiro Matsuda how to do the uh, German suplex, mm -hmm. right? But they weren't really, to, you know, like friends. You know, when I went to visit them in eighties, you know, I went to visit both of them, you know. But they weren't talking about each other, so uh, I uh, kind of kept my mouth shut, you know. I should have asked more, but uh, it was obviously Coral Gotch who taught young Hiro Matsuda how to do the perfect German suplex, and Hiro Matsuda brought the. <clears throat> German suplex back to Japan, and then, but he wasn't there to stay. He went back home with Duke Keomuka. His home was Tampa, Florida. Okay, and in 1966, uh, along with Isao Hiro Matsuda became very first promoter in Japan that uh, started the second company that was IWE, mm -hmm. International Wrestling Enterprise. And we talk about the company, mm -hmm. you know, quite a bit, right? That uh, IWE was the wrestling company that uh, existed between 1966 to all the way to 1981, 15-year period. And always a kind of a second, you know, second company. But uh, it was interesting that uh, they always had network television, you know, that uh, Channel 6 and Channel 12 a little bit later on. That uh, you know, JWA Nippon Pro Wrestling is like almost like monopoly and such an establishment. IWE too had had the network television program seven o'clock on Wednesday night, and I, <clears throat> I when I became you know wrestling fan as a kid, I watched you know Korogach against Billy mm. Robinson in Japan, Channel Six, and uh, two gaijins you know that uh, wrestle against each other, and and way back when in the six you know when I started watching in the sixties that. Uh, Japanese wrestler automatic babyface and American wrestlers automatic heel. That was the no. template, yeah. But it, on this, yeah, and uh, like you know, international champion Giant Baba, you know, was American challenger. Even even it was Gene Koniski or Bruno San Martino or Bobo Brazil or Fritz Van Erich, somebody like that. They were all automatic heel. Anyhow, that the IWE Japan. Uh, IWE company was a very you know interesting company that that, that did a lot of new things. American against American, um, uh, the, the, well, Billy Robinson, not an American, from the UK, and uh, <clears throat> Carl Gotch at the time was living in America, but we thought he was German. Okay, so two European wrestlers, you know, doing a wrestling match <clears throat> against one another. It's all clean wrestling, like you you know today's. Almost MMA catch as catch can. I mean, like 
super good wrestling. And IWE <coughs> Japan was an interesting company that introduced young monster Rushmoff, uh, later on who become under the giant. And IWE Japan was the kind of company that introduced age match into Japan. And uh, all the Japanese wrestlers with IWE had a uh, <coughs> English name, Strong Kobayashi, Thunder Sugiyama, Great Kusatsu, Russia Kimura, Animal Hamaguchi, Mighty Inoue. The, they all had ring names, which was also very IWE. Anyhow, that the Hiro Matsuda and promoter Isao um, <coughs> Yoshiwara started IWE company, and that the Hiro Matsuda was going to be the, the top talent. And th th they started the company in 1966. They were going to bring pure American style professional wrestling instead of Ricky Dozam and Baba style. And it was more domestic, right? That uh, sure enough, that the Hiro Matsuda brought uh, Danny Hodge over, and they did the exact 60, you know, exact same 60-minute uh, grappling, uh, like really high technical professional wrestling style uh, that, that he wanted to introduce in Japan and they did the 60 minute you know time limit title match uh, in Japan and but uh, following uh, oh one more thing in January 1967 tour that uh, IWE new company wasn't strong enough and Antonio Inoki's first outlaw company Tokyo Pro Wrestling was was like uh, like almost like running out of business and run out of money, all these things. So January tour, they put Inoki's Tokyo Pro Wrestling and Hiro Matsuda's IWE company put together. They had a joint tour. And that, that 1967, the pioneer tour, they call it, um, they brought back Hiro Matsuda and Inoki's NWA tag team title. I don't know if they really held it at the time, but uh, they really did win that, that the Southern Tag Team title in Tennessee in January 1965 or so, that the Ino young Inoki and Hiro Matsuda beat the Masked Medics in Tennessee and got the Tag Team title. And it was the title that they was in the magazine, so I guess they claimed that they still had this NWA Tag Team title. So they defended the title against people like uh, Eddie Graham, the Sammy Steamboat, that uh, Grizzly Smith, the Kentucky Kentuckians, and who not that the, the American wrestlers, the Hiro Matsuda brought in. So that was the very beginning of IWE that uh, Hiro Matsuda was involved. But later on in that year, that uh, Channel Six TBS pretty much took over IWE and renamed it TBS Pro Wrestling and pushed Matsuda out of the way. You know. And Hiro Matsuda said, basically said, fuck it, and excuse my language, that he packed up and left and went back home. Home is America. And that he never looked back, and he never worked IWE again. Hmm. Yeah. It was the first, yeah. you know, we think of wrestling in Japan, we think of the big two. But, sure. New Japan and old Japan? I think most... It wasn't even right. there until 1972. Yeah, and, and IWE was yeah. one of the first companies that brought a certain aspects of pro wrestling. Yeah, because there's another wrestling out there. brought yeah. in an international aspect. It also had a kind of a, 
a more raw or rough, almost like a Crockett style uh, approach or production compared with all Japan and New Japan at the time. It was a little more. You, you would the first time that I've seen the, the where deathmatch used in wrestling was with IWE. I think I don't know. Yeah, like cage, cage match. match. Yeah, Russia Kimura against what the yeah. Alexis Smirnoff or like a Gypsy Joe or. Something like that. Stomper. Ox uh, Baker. Stomper <laughs> um, yeah, Stomper. Killer Tim Brooks. And, uh, yeah. uh, before that, they were bringing in all kinds of European wrestlers. You know, aged Carl Gotch, young Billy Robinson, uh, the Jeff Forge, Tony Charles, Sean Reagan, the, the, uh, George Gordienko, the Hurst Hoffman. The, the European wrestlers were brought in. So I thought it was very interesting because it was all American heels in JWA side, you know, that they're all, and then people were led to believe that it was all to it, you know. But the IWE really introduced their more to wrestling than that. Yeah, and, that and that spirit is... Yeah, they were basically doing, yeah, they were doing what JWA mm -hmm. weren't doing. That spirit still exists on the Indies in Japan, you know, that's... The, there are always so many right, indies, I guess, and yeah. it seems like indies in Japan, I don't think, will have the chance to experience like a, a boom like it's happened in the States because just the market's different. But And that, that's fine because while the indie shows are rather small in Japan, they'll never go away because there is that spirit for, I like wrestling, but I want it a certain way, the, the kind of third option is always still there and yeah, like, like an alternative. alternative and also there are more to wrestling yeah there are all more to wrestling than the big establishment big league company because like you know Anthony Inoki's new japan giant baba's heyday heyday old japan is so much like your major league wrestling that they'll provide you and they'll feed you to certain wrestlers certain stars in a certain way if you don't like it mm -hmm. yeah that's it right but uh IW really, uh, in hindsight, provided what was missing. Yeah. So after IWE, not the big company though, but after uh, 1968, Hiro Matsuda altogether left IE, uh, IWE and never looked back and never worked mm. IWE again. But in, uh, he came back to uh, JWA a number of times to be like a guest, you know, Japanese wrestler, barefooted Japanese wrestler. Who lived in, you know, lived in America? So he's like a half American and half Japanese. Very interesting. Much like Masasaito was later on. Yeah. yeah. And year after, okay, Jan Baba opens his All Japan Pro Wrestling mm -hmm. in 1972, right? And very first inaugural Champion Carnival starts in spring of 1973. Okay. I mean, Champion Carnival. I mean, today's old Japan still have it 50 mm. years later. You know what I'm saying? That champion carnival tournament. That very first um, 1973 old Japan champion carnival tournament, Hiro Matsuda was brought mm. in. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah. And also, uh, he worked open uh, tournament. You know, it's a famous open tournament, old Japan, December of 1975. You had a you had the you had Dory Funk, you had Mr. Wrestling, you had Dusty Rose, Dick Murdoch, Don Leo Jonathan, the Baron Von Rashki, the I mean all kinds of superstar in it. And there was a 13 year 
uh, anniversary Ricky Dozen's memorial show that Hiromatsuda ended up working. Yeah. That was the same night on the other side of the town. Inoki and Billy Robinson had their match at the Sumo Palace. And three miles away, same night that the Nippon Budokan had uh, Ricky Dozen's 13-year memorial show that the giant Baba uh, destroyer against Jumbo Tsura and Dory Funk together. And uh, Hiro Matsuda defended his NWA World Junior Heavyweight title against Mighty Inoue of IWE. Mm. The history is interesting, huh? When I got a yeah. question for you about this time with Hiro Matsuda because you said yeah. around still he was still active wrestling. He was going between Japan and the states. Did he? Right, mainly in America. By then, he was a part owner of NWA Florida um, Championship Wrestling from Florida. Eddie Graham, Dusty Rose, Duke Keomuka, and Hiro Matsuda. Those were the owners. Would you say when he would wrestle in Japan, would he change his style in Japan? Did he wrestle the same way? Did he wrestle like he did in America when he would come back? Ah, well, I did not really watch um, Hiro Matsuda's match in America. He, I think he utilized more kicks and chops rather in America. And he wrestled more grappling like a like a really um, old-fashioned grappling Korogachi style mm. in Japan, a little bit more. Because I remember, yeah, sure. And Okana. Yeah, role. I remember, you know, seeing clips and you see, like we talked about earlier, the the uh, uh, coming into the ring with the kimono and doing the karate chops and uh, well, right, I'm right, right. To think, I remember seeing him with you know Dusty Rhodes, and. He's kind of like a heel, right? Kind of like like Great Muta or Great Kabuki, mm-hmm. not as extreme, of course, but the oh, 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 oh. of course it's a you still have very stereotypical Japanese way of you know. He, he was doing it. what he knew. Yeah, he didn't throw no, salt or anything. But yeah, karate chop yeah. and kick I mean, barefooted, playing it really it black played trunks. to the crowd pretty well back then. Yeah, and also his uh, the second uh, his second finishing maneuver mm-hmm. was abdominal stretch, which uh, Danny Hodge and Hiro Matsuda shared abdominal stretch. In Japan, mm-hmm. it's Cobra right. Twist. Yeah, also Cobra Twist was Anthony Inoki's very early finish too. Those are very also interesting had the, uh, things. The sleeper, yeah. the famous sleeper. In in the states, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. He didn't do they the sleeper holding like in the Japan. the master of the oriental sleeper. Something like that. Ah, okay. There is no such <laughs> thing right. as oriental only, only sleeper. But, um, but that was the time <laughs> back then where it was easier to you know, make something up. But if you didn't know anything about it, it, it sounded pretty exotic. You just assume all yeah, Japanese I mean, wrestlers do. If you don't do. know anything else about <laughs> Japan, what yeah. gives you a reason not to believe so that's That's what it was like back then. Right. And also, it was like very important that uh, he was doing a perfect-looking, you know, bridging German suplex before Inoki was doing it. But he he just you know he wasn't yeah. working in Japan the same way or the same time. Uh, you know, different path. Yeah, and what was interesting was though um, when Hiro Matsuda was working for Baba's All Japan, or I should say, Baba was using Hiro Matsuda. Uh, he uh, was like babyface mm-hmm. guest. You know what I'm saying? Like a guest appearance. Then 1977, he switched size from Baba's Old Japan to Inoki's Japan, changed affiliate. 
that changed the landscape a little bit that the, all the NWA Florida wrestlers started coming to New Japan, Inoki's side. Young Steve Kern, uh, uh, or even Jack Briscoe worked at the, you know, dates in, in New Japan a little bit. And uh, a lot of Florida wrestlers started coming to New Japan. And also, like a young Ricky Choshu went to, went to Florida. And a lot of Japanese wrestlers went to Florida. The killer, younger Killer Khan, the Kendo Narasaki, the, uh, or even uh, Kabuki before he Keiji was great. Kabuki. too. You know, they were, oh, oh, oh okay. we're still the in the 80s, 70s. 85, I jumped 86, ahead a little 87. bit. In the 70s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But uh, Mr. Sato or younger Tenru, when when Tenru was rookie in, in the first tour, he was trained under Dory Funk and Terry Funk in Amarillo and went back home and spent a year. And he had, he had a second trip, you know, uh, Tenru went back to America and worked another year. And that time he worked uh, Florida, the Georgia, the North Carolina. The, uh, he was pretty much based in, in Florida. And then uh, Hiro Matsuda influence was clearly there. Yeah, I mean, somebody like uh, working as a liaison for Japanese company and Japanese wrestler to be working in the States, you know, you need connection. And Hiro Matsuda was there, um, like not on camera person, but he was there as a booker. He was there as a promoter. He was there as a producer. Yeah, yeah we were talking earlier about it too. This role that Hiro Matsuda kind of created, he had to create for himself this kind of work. So that role is still a common function at, both for big japanese companies working with overseas companies or just the idea and process of having that point person proceed um there was no uh yeah kind of demonstration of how to do it nobody there was no way there was no uh, guide so i think it's so yeah and also he paved the way and he went to America with right. no connection, but he just made his Unheard own way in that time. Uh, as an active wrestler. Yeah, yeah. So that that is why we have to really, um, I wouldn't want to say, like, I'm not arrogant enough to say educate the younger audience, uh, the podcast listener out there, but they, we need to learn about, really learn about legacy of Hiro Matsuda. It's, well, I, it's I think overlooked. it's clear his, he has had an influence both on a, not like you said, like a Japanese pro wrestling business, but also, and probably even more so on the American side, uh, uh, the Southern Territories, American wrestling. Uh, you know, he was there for it. And in the 70s, I don't know, when did he stop uh, wrestling as much? When did Hiromatsuda become less of an active? I think he wrestles on and off until mm-hmm. like 1990, he, almost. When was he... Uh, when did he become more of a trainer and more and less of a full time? End of the like 70s. end of seventies. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because end of seventy, like seventy six, he trained. Obviously, he trained Paul Orndorff and and Paul, mm-hmm. uh, Hulk Hogan, right? And like eighty four, eighty five, he trained people like Lex Luger and Ron Simmons. And end of seventies, he was training Ray Hernandez, mm-hmm. later on Hercules. Yeah, so I think then, yeah, end of seventies, he was already more of a trainer. And then when he mm-hmm. wanted to be in the ring, he did. Yeah, and also he had a program against babyface version of 
Dusty Rhodes. See, Dusty Rhodes, until he came to Florida and made his home base there in Florida, he was Texas Outlaws. You know, tag team combination, Dusty Rhodes and, and Dick Murdoch together as big heel tag team. And and the, the, the heel, Puckson, and somebody else, uh, the, the turn on Dusty Rhodes, that made Dusty Rhodes big, big, huge baby face in Florida. And Hiro Matsuda was right there. Yeah, and then uh, Babyface Dusty Rose against Heel Hiro Matsuda program was there. And in Florida, you know, in the local territory of Florida. But it was like a main event, yeah. So he was training wrestlers from the you know early 80s, mid 80s. And there was at that time we talked about. Late, yeah, late 70s what, into the early uh... 80s. And oh, also in... Uh, there was a very important match in 1978 that uh, he, in storyline, he formed all these um, free free agent Japanese wrestlers together and invaded uh, New Japan. Hiro Matsuda, Masa Saito, Umanosuke Ueda, uh, Thunder Sugiyama, and Ryuma Go, you know, like five of big freelance Japanese heels invaded Japanese ring. Much like your later on, Ishingun, the Ricky Choshu or 90s NWO mm-hmm. kind of storyline. And then there was a tournament pre um, Nippon Championship. There was no, thing, not, no such thing as Japan Heavyweight Championship, right? But it was a, there was a t- tournament. Those five uh, Hiro Matsuda's you know, army that uh, Hiro Matsuda, Masa Saito, that uh, Umanosuke Ueda, the Thunder Sugiyama, the Ryumago, they, they challenged the New Japan. And the, at the Tournament final, it was Inoki against Hiro Matsuda. So I think that was the last big, big, what big match that? Hiro Matsuda had in Japan. 78. 78? Yeah. And then Inoki sh- sure beat Hiro Matsuda f- with his octopus, you know, that the moderate version of abdominal stretch, but it's octopus this time that the Inoki beat Hiro Matsuda. That, uh, kingpin of this free agent Japanese heels. But by then, that the New Japan Pro Wrestling and NWA Fl- Florida had this almost like a partnership, you know. And it, I think Hiro Matsuda was the one who put together the pieces. Yeah. Because up until then, NWA meant All Japan Pro Wrestling That's Giant Baba's affiliate. Huh? So. Yeah, we learned that the NW, one of the NWA strong territory can be partner of New Japan. Yeah. And dream dream match like Dusty Rhodes against Inoki happened that year. Yeah. I mean, following year, 79. Yeah. And all kinds of, you know, American superstars started making appearance in New Japan ring instead of old Japan. And at the same time, that uh, Inoki already had the partnership with Vince McMahon Sr.'s WWF, right? So it's not like when Korogachi was booking talent for New Japan in the very early 70s, they didn't have many famous superstar American in, in New Japan ring. But uh, with Hiro Matsuda's uh, NWA, you know, Florida affiliate, that the, all kinds of superstar Americans start making appearance for Inoki's New Japan pro wrestling. So that was also all that the element that the the historical uh, that the thing that has been so overlooked. Yeah, I would say Hiro Matsuda was instrumental in in doing so. And 
at, you know, aside from training wrestlers in the 80s, throughout the 80s, he did, he would appear in Crockett promotions sometimes, WCW or whatever it's called during the late 80s. Yeah, as a right, players yeah. manager sometimes. Or the, you know, fixed, you know, fictitious Japanese, you know, big conglomerate company Masaki called Masaki yeah, Corporation. Right. It was also the time, it was the, the bubble you know period what I'm too, so it really yeah. was uh, topical what, during the late 80s into the early 90s that oh, Japan is taking over the world. Their economy is so strong. Yeah, that was, a, that <laughs> yeah. was like fear. And I think WCW wanted to feed right Yeah, and, and it. it didn't really matter how many how many years Hiromatsu was in, in, in America. He always had this strong Japanese mm. accent, right? Doing interview, yeah. That was stereotypical way, I guess, you know. But, uh, right, but he was part of the NWA office, though. Yeah. And he was maybe one of the one of the very few wrestlers who never right. came home yeah he was one of the you first know, he became american citizen oh man yeah like a masa saito the great kabuki or kendo narasaki uh, killer khan they spent 10 15 years 20 years in america but they eventually yeah, but, came uh, home huh? what hiromatsuda did hiromatsuda he never came home. home he became more involved in the american, american wrestling citizen. business than the japanese part of it so his his career ended right, up right. being rooted here in the state. So, um, yeah, yeah. So a very unique. I, I think he might have been the first wrestler to to establish that kind. Can do that. You don't have to uh, belong to one of the big companies. And I mean, he, yeah. I mean, he was the only one did that. Yeah. Well, you know, he spent time in America, but he became. I mean, came home and became superstar. Giant Baba spent a couple of years in America, toured, but eventually he came back to Japan mm. to be the guy, right? So Hiro Matsuda choose to stay in America. Yeah. And also he was part of the uh, WCW, you know, WCW at the beginning. Because if, if you remember uh, Jim Hart era to Kip Fry era, to Bill Watts era mm-hmm. of WCW, remember? Until Eric Bischoff era. That uh, uh, during this uh, Bill Watts era of WCW, there was a the beginning of G1 Climax tournament in New Japan. If you mem- remember the early first couple years of G1 tournament, if you watch videos on the over on the other side of the ring, Dusty Rose, Bill Watts, all sitting in the ringside mm-hmm. as a witness, right? Hiro Matsuda was all, right. always there too. He was the official. He was in the, in the very early Tokyo Dome show that he brought in a um, lot of wrestlers from America. And then he was Bill Watts and Hiro Matsuda. They were like a working partner for decades by then. Yeah. From Oklahoma, Louisiana to Florida to wherever. And, and then he was both promoters and bookers. Yeah. So that kind. Uh, that different era, and you know, I think Hiro must have really helped Inoki uh, do the business mm-hmm. with the American side of it, you know. But never was on camera, or it was never introduced as mm-hmm. this is the guy who did it. Hiro Matsuda pretty much 
choose to be behind the camera. It was never on camera. Like, like, like this is the guy who put together WCW deal with New Japan. Well, the Masa Saito was involved too, but the Masa and, and Hiro Matsuda were really, really good friends. And I'll tell you one episode. I told you one time that uh, if, like every other year or so during 90s, uh, late 80s into 90s then, New Japan Pro Wrestling invite Hiro Matsuda over for uh, not to work in the ring, but the business and tour and negotiation and other things that uh, New Japan will invite Hiro Matsuda over. Then uh, they, they, you know, provide nice big hotel in Tokyo, right? And instead, that Hiro Matsuda said, no, I'm not staying in hotel. And then he comes to Masasaito's condominium and sleep on his their couch. So they go out and have a good time. You know, it was very interesting. He gets up in the morning, he does his, you know, 200 push-up and 200 sit-ups so they can go out and drink. I mean, this is just an old-fashioned guy. So I went to uh, Masa's apartment, you know, uh, while... Sorry <laughs> that right. the Kiki is saying... Hello. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry about that. Um, he's just passing through. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was okay with because he's really old-fashioned. Okay. That uh, he wouldn't talk to anybody unless you're a wrestler. You know. But the master told him I'm okay. So <laughs> so I was okay with you know my, he was okay with me and I asked a lot of different questions like <laughs> stupid wrestling mark. You know. But uh, yeah, man. Because old-fashioned guy. I mean, he's from before my time. And I wanted to know the you know how you know he formed IWE or how he left IWE or uh, what was a match or like with Danny Hodge or what it's like to be a part owner of NWA company or how it was like to train Hulk Hogan. Mm. You gotta ask those questions, right? Oh, that's what people want to know. I mean, fans <laughs> want to know. Yeah, yeah. Then he answered pretty much, and a couple years later. Uh, I was sent to Florida to do a big magazine interview for Hulk Hogan, you know, that uh, that was right between uh, WWE and the year before he signed with WCW, he was doing the movies, Thunder in Paradise. So I was go going to a uh, location, you know, place and I was going to, I had an appointment at Hulk Hogan's trailer, you know, that the big trailer that we use as a, his dressing room. I mean, like, a, I mean, that's like where he eats lunch and restore, read through your scenario or whatever that the, he was there. And Hiro Matsuda volunteered to drive to the location for me. Yeah. So he let he let you in on. The, Are you with uh, me? On that? Kind of. Uh, I mean, this was a time too when Hulk Hogan was a megastar. Big, big. He was oh huge. Oh, I met right. Hulk Hogan yeah, but way at before this that, time. Though, like, you know? like you said, yeah. you, like you're describing, you know, Hollywood Hulk Hogan. This is kind of where the name came from because he took a break and did movies, and then came this movies. Yeah, so that was a location he was doing all day, all week. You know, the Thunder in Paradise, and how many times? Can you imagine how many times you get your ID checked until we get to the location? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the trailer. <laughs> and it was before your cell phone. I mean, a few years before your cell phone. And at the first place that you get, you know, who are you? It's just, you know, you get ID checked. 
what we did was Hiro had Hiro Matsuda call up Jimmy Hart and Jimmy Hart, you know, came running and got us, you know, that was really great. So with Hiro Matsuda and Jimmy Hart, I was able to get to Hulk Hogan's trailer. That's what I'm trying to get to. And Hiro Matsuda was happy to see Hiro, uh, the Hulk Hogan. I mean, first time in years too, right? So uh, I witnessed how they talked to each what other. What a story and what a guy uh, Mr. Matsuda yeah. was to help you out like that. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Oh, I'm mm. so grateful to this day. Yeah. And he, uh, he is, while he was driving, of course, you know, we talked wrestling all through and all back, you know, and uh, had dinner and talked more wrestling. Yeah. So, yeah, he was very, very old fashioned, you know, and uh, didn't really believe in wrestling school, you know, that it's not how you teach wrestlers, you know, how to work. You know, he had to be somebody handpicked by somebody who was wrestler, and uh, you have to be trained very privately. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what he did. Yeah, he didn't believe in wrestling school or the place like Monster Factory. You know, he hated like a place like Monster Factory, who you know anybody can get in, paying you know a couple thousand dollars to have lessons, right? I mean, how are they gonna learn anything? You know. How are they going to learn anything from Larry Sharp or something? And he was really vocal about it. You know, he hated the idea of wrestling school. That's very Isn't interesting. interesting. He seemed to have a very specific philosophy on how to train, or rather, how a wrestler should be trained. Or get right. somebody in the business. It, it seemed like yeah. that Matsuda believed that you really needed to have the physical part of wrestling down. You had to have your body ready to go and you had to understand how to be an athlete before you could even start to start learning about matches and and also lecture lecture your trainee mm-hmm. individually like a right like it's a not mentor. like a class it's like a uh, apprenticeship or like how to take bump one and bump two and bump three and yeah how to do the proper uh call and elbow tie up it's like you just have to learn by wrestling mm. me, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's where Hulk Hogan's, you know, the arm or leg being broken by Hiro Matsuda story came from uh, one of those training sessions. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he really broke. I mean, meant to break Hulk Hogan's leg or arm or elbows or anything like that. But the, the, by doing a arm lock, Kimura or something, maybe Hulk Hogan's, you know, shoulder got dislocated or something, but to put that back in the socket right away or something, I don't know, but uh, it was his way of method, or not just Hiro Matsuda, but the, all those old-fashioned coaches. Yeah, it wasn't it just uh, Matsuda, it was yeah. Lee Anderson, and it was other... Mm. Bob Roop. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Or Carl Gotcha, of course. The Carl Gotcha, it goes you know, right back to Carl Gotcha, Ricky Choshu story too. See, a lot of people to this day that believe that the Carl Gotcha straight Ricky Choshu and young Ricky Choshu packed up and left, right? Not true. It was like Ricky, you know, rookie Ricky Choshu wanted to learn how yeah, to he work. He was ready. How to he work, had already right? been to the Olympics. But, yeah, well, all... Yeah, all Carl Gotcha will, will give you is conditioning, conditioning, conditioning training all day long, right? And then for young Ricky Choshis, oh, I've done this all this in all college year and I went to Olympic and all this. Just teach me how to work. It wasn't like that with Carl Gotch. 
So it's not like Karo got stretched, Ricky Joshi, and Ricky Joshi packed up and left. Actually, he in the same same summer, Ricky Joshi and Hiro Matsuda made a tag team and worked Florida territory until Ricky Joshi moved to up to Montreal and worked another year. You know, so lot of lot of the old old you know like old fashioned stories being like almost like uh, has another chapter in 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 myth and legend. You know, it became a completely different story by mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, but for Hiro Matsuda, that he was working as a policeman for a wrestling company to protect the business. He only coached ones that has you know good physique and good you know athletic background and has potential. Then he might train you. And the ones, the ones he trained and debuted and became star, that proves it. Yeah, very much you know? so. Yeah, the name like. Yeah, how how Kogan Pondorf, the Ron Simmons, the Lex Luger, the Keiji Muto, the uh, there was another person, that, Ed Gantner or something, who didn't quite make it, and there was another guy, Ninja Warrior, that, that didn't quite make it. There's a couple guys didn't make it, but oh, I can't I can't forget the Hercules too, Her, you know Ray Hernandez, later on Hercules. And you mentioned he, he also started. had a good deal, part training part of uh, Keiji Muto's early career. In the states, right after after Young Lion one year, and he came to Florida to grow his hair, and then to work in the ring for a whole year, and then they learn the language and whole bit. That Hiro Matsuda was there for him. Yeah, wow. yeah. Very, very influential. If you take Hiro Matsuda out of it, and uh, we don't have a lot of uh, history, right? But uh, later on, that uh, he wasn't as fortunate because. WCW meant that uh, NWA Florida was already out of business. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, because you know, WWE Vince McMahon took over the entire country and NWA Crockett expanded the territory, but didn't do well that the NWA Crockett had to sell it to Ted Turner, you know, the whole company. And then the NWA Crockett became WCW. And after WCW was established, it was all like corporate, right? And no more NWA territory. It's kind of a big, one big company, WCW. And WCW, Hiro Matsuda was you know, involved too. But uh, until like Bill Watts era, and uh, uh, this is not to badmouth Eric Bischoff, but uh, after Eric Bischoff era, he did not know who Hiro Matsuda was at all. I mean, didn't know who, who is that, you know, kind of thing. And he basically fired Hiro Matsuda not knowing who he really was. Unfortunate, right? Eric. Well, he he fired injured oh, Steve yeah, Austin. Story and Sean Waltman. He he fired me, Mark, who later mm-hmm. on becomes Undertaker. Remember? Yeah. Scott Hall. And uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's uh, just like one of these stories that the hero Matsuda was uh, basically fired by somebody who didn't even know who he was, who, who hero Matsuda was. Yeah, so it's I'm not here to badmouth Eric Bischoff about it, but he just didn't know, you know. But uh, I guess if it was somebody else, that could happen too, you know. It was Hiro Matsuda was from like a really old-fashioned establishment that the while wrestling business was becoming more and more corporate or TV-oriented. Mm-hmm. 
business instead of wrestling, wrestling yeah. business. You know what I'm saying? Well, wrestling was changing yeah. around then. The wrestling really and changed then, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very much in the mid 90s into new millennium and mid 90s until 2001. It was all WWF against WCW. Right. That's it, you know, Monday Night War. Yeah, and uh, I guess that uh, that's how Hiro Matsuda's legacy and what he meant was pretty much lost and so. shuffled, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's why we have to really <laughs> dig this out and you know let people know who yeah, Hiro Matsuda was. And the last, yeah, yeah, and last real Japanese wrestler who were really really good friend who became good friend with with Hiro Matsuda was um, Osamu Nishimura, hmm. who was New Japan wrestler, but who was who were living in Florida at the time, and uh, he, he took this this like. If nobody's, you know, getting in contact with these legends, I would, because it's like that was Osamu Nishimura's opportunity to become friends with Korogach, become friends with Hiro Matsuda, and all these, you know, all the buddy cult or, or all these Florida legends. Yeah, and he enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, yeah. We shouldn't forget how so, you know influential it, he's been on both Japanese and American wrestling. It's pretty. Um, there's no, there was no one before him. In yeah, and also he, uh, he was one of the very first Japanese wrestler who got the green right. card in America and decided to live in America and become American citizen. And he never went back to Japan. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I just, yeah, I just got the piece of paper. Yeah, uh, re recorded last active wrestling match Hiro Matsuda had was. December of 1990, the exhibition match against Osamu Kido in Yokohama Arena. 1990. Yeah. In, 19, <clears throat> in 1999, November 20th, November 26th, uh, he died of uh, colon cancer. Yeah. But he left such an so, impact um, yeah. on the business. Again, I mean, it's hard not to uh, stress it. I mean, from the... I mean, if he was just a trainer, look at how much uh, influence he's had. But I mean, before that, in Japan, as, as an active wrestler in Japan, in America, in America too, big main event, sixties and seventies, he got the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Title in two different era. One time he beat Danny Hodge. Second time he beat Ken Mantel and got the white globe belt. You know that. Let's show the picture. And uh, so he was active, you know, wrestler 20 year period just in America. And he had an occasional trip to Japan and he had a, always had a main event status, kind of guest appearance though, but still treated as a main event guy. Yeah. And had a run with Old Japan, Baba's Old Japan Pro Wrestling as a, like a American Japanese, like a baby face guest appearance. But with Inoki in that ring, he chose to be heel and had a ma single match against Inoki. Mm -hmm. So that was a big one too. Yeah. It's the same way Masa felt. See, if Masa Saito was a baby face in the same corner with Inoki and Sakaguchi or Fujinami, he would be like a third or fourth guy, right? In yeah, probably. But instead, Masa Saito chose to be in the other side of the ring as a big time heel than having a single match program against Antonio Inoki, that 
that's what he wanted you know so hiro matsuda and yeah master pretty much the same just matsuda 10 15 years older yeah oh five ten ten years older maybe yeah yeah but if it wasn't for somebody like hiro matsuda other japanese wrestler wouldn't have be able to do right. I mean, things. these yeah. days it's more and more common to see wrestlers from Japan maybe move over here. Short trip, the short, short trip. trip. That's right. Or, or I mean, either yeah. facilitated or unfacilitated. It's it's more common, and uh, people learn how to do it. And I think people like your Matsuda were are important in, in showing how people in the business can move around and. and be successful without being attached to a company. You can have success as a freelancer and you can carve out your own route. Yeah, and then not exactly college educated, but he spoke three languages Japanese, right. Spanish, and English. Yeah, and then became part right. of the another company. That's another big oh thing. Gosh. First, a Japanese wrestling businessman to have <clears throat> and do business in the States regularly. That's not, it was not common. It still isn't common. Right. And also, like in early, early 80s, he was in charge of selling uh, Japanese, I mean, a New Japan um, video footage to mm -hmm. European market. Yeah. But the, when uh, that was also another obstacle that the, when Ted Turner, you know, WCW company took over Crockett and WCW became partnership with New Japan and that the hero much that trying to sell uh, new japan programming into uh, european market that the wcw should be doing now or something because it's ted turner tv company right so uh that's another obstacle that the that the i guess that the new management didn't want hero matsuda around for yeah so it's like a, somewhat a victim of circumstances, you know, in early 90s. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. But he didn't really want to do it, you know, that he was no longer active wrestler. And he wasn't really training any new, young, you know, new wrestlers at the time because it's so corporate, WCW. If it was Florida, local territory, and debut a rookie in Florida and send the guy to Pensacola or Atlanta or different territory that existed that the, you're on your own, go ahead, right? I mean, work, work in territory and become somebody. But it was in 90s, it was either WWF or WCW. It's all too big company, big establishment. The structure was so yeah, It seems like Matsuda was a product of the territorial <clears throat> days. He, he, like, like when you brought yeah, up Eric definitely, Bischoff, definitely, he's a great example yeah. of someone who wasn't brought up during the territorial days he was brought post-territorial days he was tv era you know different philosophies and pretty much yeah although he started started with you know dying sure, days of sure. AWA. Yeah. but yeah, it, yeah culture changed and then yeah. wrestling changed and i think a lot of his peers mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. the southern territories also you know would phase out around this time too and his contemporary friends, Dusty Rose, no longer with us. Duke Keomka, Eddie Graham, Mike Graham, all these, mm. all gone. Yeah. Yeah. Carl Gotch, Malenko, all gone. Yeah. That's why we have to really, yeah, um, look, you know, look into this, this influential historic, you know, historical figure, wrestler, promoter, producer, trainer, uh, very influential mm -hmm. you know, people.
and hero hero much and i think when you learn all of this and then you go back and watch i think it helps appreciate it helps you appreciate everything there's an interesting footage that uh, when masa saito and mr sato uh, uh, great kabuki you know but uh, back then it was mr sato mr saito and mr sato debuted again in florida and Babyface Hero Matsuda was doing the commentary on, on the table with Gordon Soli, and Masa Saito and Mr. Saito, uh, Masa Saito and Mr. Sato attacks Hiro Matsuda in, in the broadcasting table and beat him up. There's the footage out there. I'll try to it's find it. Very that. interesting. All right, so <laughs> I, I think this is a good time to wrap it up. Yeah, Gordon Soli is another name. Yeah, it's another name era. that kind of you know disappeared at the, around the same time. It was just that's just how. It it still didn't. Yeah, all, all it doesn't take anything away from the yeah. influence and impact folks like Matsuda or Matsuda himself had on. So, I, I think that's one of those uh, cool things mm-hmm. that we can learn and take from. So, a lot to take from. So, if you have questions, if listeners have good. questions out there, I mean, how can? Oh, well, well, what's that? Something what's that? we left out. <clears throat> It wasn't. It wasn't purpose. On purpose. I'm just basically talking, <laughs> top of my head. No worries. Right now, so. But if if we did leave something out and uh, we had a que- somebody had a question, how can, yeah, how can something they need to know? It? Yeah. On Twitter, it's Fumihiko at Fumihiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O at Fumihiko Dayo, or just Fumi Saito on on Facebook. Message me first. And on Twitter, I'm at Justin M Nipper K N I P P R. If questions, let us know, send us a message. But uh, yeah, that's it. So for now, until then, Pumi, can you take it away? All right. So long from Tokyo. <laughs>